17th of April 2018. A teenage girl at a local shopping centre is allegedly grabbed by the hips and attempted to be kissed by a high-risk sex offender who was granted bail in 2015 after serving 18 years for raping women. This is the story of Graham James Kay, the North Shore Rapist. Host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. We see it again and again. Some people just shouldn't be let out on the street. Tonight's story is about Graham James Kay, who allegedly couldn't keep his hands to himself the other day and allegedly grabbed a teenage girl at a local shopping centre and tried to kiss her, the dirty old bugger. Now, I say allegedly as this high-risk sex offender has yet to go on trial over the matter, and I will get to the rage later on when I tell you what happened when he got arrested. Now, tonight's show relies heavily on court documents, which I kind of like as it cuts through a lot of the bullshit. Born on the 26th of September 1951, He attained his school certificate in 1965. By trade, Kay is a reprographics planner or graphics designer. He has at all times had regular employment. Kay was married in January 1974 and divorced in December 1995. He has two children. In about 1995, he commenced a de facto relationship. But rather than talk too much about his life, let's get down to his criminal side. On the 29th of December 1970, at 19 years of age, Kay saw a woman wearing a short miniskirt waiting in the street. He stopped his car and walked close enough to her to place his hand up her dress on her thigh. He was arrested for assault and was given a three-year good behaviour bond. In December 1974, Kay committed an indecent assault and again, a three-year good behaviour bond was entered into. Kay saw a 24- and a 15-year-old female from his car. He stopped the car, got out and at least for a time followed them. He entered the front yard of the premises of the older woman who was apparently wearing a light or see-through dress. He then turned around, approached her, placed his hand under her dress and on her panties and then ran off. In September 1983 and again in March of 1987, He committed offences against Section 547C of the Crimes Act of being near a building without reasonable cause, with intent to peep or pry. And in each case, sentence was deferred upon him entering into a two-year good behaviour bond. What happened in both of these cases was very similar. Kay, while driving saw a woman in her undies through the window of her residence. He stopped his car, allegedly to take a piss. Seeing a light on in the flat, he walked up the side of the property so that he could perv on the woman inside. While watching, he got a boner and wanked himself off. The other offence was again a situation 
where Kay had entered a property because of an alleged need to piss, but he really wanted to perv and whack off. In August 1994, he was convicted of breaching a domestic violence order relating to his then wife. So this guy's not only creepy, but he doesn't mind groping women on the street when he gets horny, but he's a peeping Tom and a dirty perv as well. It also looks like he's a wife beater. Still, the justice system keeps giving him non-custodial sentences for fuck's sake. So after each of these perverted incidents, Kay saw a psychiatrist and it was more to help him in sentencing rather than actually trying to help himself keep keep his hands to himself. After the first offence, Kay saw a Dr. Ellard who advised him that if it happened again, he should find out the reasons behind his actions. What the fuck does that mean, Dr. Ellard? You're a doctor. I mean, sometimes I think these people get caught up in their academia and they need to get out in the real world. Anyway, after the second offence, Kay saw a Dr. Lucas and he gave similar advice. I mean, these guys get paid for this. Both doctors expressed the view that recurrence was unlikely. Dr. Lucas saying also that he did not think Kay would progress to a more serious offence. Well, Lucas, he will, and I'm and me and Blind Freddy would have known that he was gonna get worse. After the third offence, Kay saw a Dr. Rumiz who recommended that he consider seeking assistance. A condition of the bond given to Kay after the fourth offence was that he undertake counselling and treatment as required by the probation and parole service. In fact, Kay saw a counsellor twice. His excuses were that his work was too demanding and that his counsellor had moved into private practice which he said put her beyond his financial reach. Dr Wong said that if he had any motivation to seek counselling, he could have done so. Good on you, Dr Wong. Okay, so that was his pathetic criminal history up to 1994. A groper and a perv. Convicted, but no time in jail. Now, maybe if he had. Anyway. As we now get to 12.15am on the 23rd of December 1995. Now to protect the identities of the victims, they will be named Victim 1, Victim 2 and so on. I will put a trigger warning here as I will be describing acts of violence and sexual assault. Now it won't be the worst kind, but it is just a warning. At about 12.15am on the 23rd of December 1995, victim one was walking down the driveway of a block of units where she lived in Balgala. Kay approached her from behind and placed one hand across her mouth and a scalpel against her throat. He said, don't say anything or I'll cut you, pushed her against a fence and said, where's your money? He stuffed what the victim thought was a dark sock in her mouth and fondled one of her breasts. Kay then demanded the victim put her hands over the fence, and she did. He then undid the belt and zip of the jeans the victim was wearing, and put a hand down inside her undies, and rubbed her labia. He removed his hand, and pulled the victim's underpants down, and returned his hand to her genitals. On this occasion, inserting a finger into her vagina, and thrusting it in and out for some time. Then, still with the scalpel at the victim's throat, he took his hand away from her vagina and undid his own belt and pants. With the front of his body against the victim's back, his hand again returned to her vaginal area and his hand movements became more frantic and forceful. He again moved his hand away and demanded the victim bend over. She did so and he put his dick into her vagina from behind. 
It was not erect and he failed. Soon afterwards, he stopped, pulled up his pants and said to the victim, I'm not going to rape you. I won't rape you because I've had too much to drink and you've had too much to drink. So if you don't move and you don't say a fucking word, you'll be all right because I won't hurt you. The victim nodded her head. Kay pulled the gag out of her mouth and walked up the driveway towards the street. The victim did not move for some time, then went to her unit and called the police. She felt that her attacker had had a balaclava on. The victim was 25 years old at the time. Following the incident, she had a light cut across the front of her throat, a small cut on the inside and outside of her upper lip, and her mouth was sore and bruised. There were small scratches on the inside of her lower lip. When seen by a doctor later in the day, the victim was extremely distressed, as you can imagine. On this charge in court, when Kay was asked why he did it, he said he could give no explanation beyond saying he lost control. Lost control. No, you're scum and you have no respect for women. Anyway, we must go on. Next case. At about 10.40pm on the 28th of March 1996, victim 2 alighted from a train at Artaman Railway Station and walked to the block of units in which she resided in White Street, Artaman. Shortly after arriving at the block, she commenced walking up the stairs from the garage area. About halfway up, she saw and was passed by a man dressed in black walking down. Shortly thereafter, she was pushed against the wall. The, ma- the man asked, Do you have any money? And, are you a virgin? He shoved a thick sock or piece of rag a short distance into her mouth. It came out and fell onto the stairs. He said, If that happens again, I'll kill you. Don't do it again. And the victim felt something sharp and cold at her throat. Later she saw it was a knife like a hunting knife with a jagged edge on the blade. The victim could feel the knife push deeper into her throat with every move she made. Kay pushed the sock back into the victim's mouth so far she felt she was going to choke. He said, don't worry, I won't hurt you. Don't worry, I won't hurt you. Hmm. Kay took the knife away and pushed the victim against the wall again. He pulled the pants and underpants she was wearing down to her ankles and returned the knife to her throat. He inserted his other hand between the victim's legs from behind, rubbed around the labia and penetrated her vagina with one or more fingers. This or these he thrust in and out saying, Does this feel good? And are you a virgin? His activities hurt. He removed his hand and the victim then felt what was Kay's flaccid penis near her vagina. The victim turned, took the sock out of her mouth and said words to the effect, No, I'm not doing that. Kay turned her and again pushed her face and body into the wall, ordering, Get your hands back up against the wall and don't move. The victim felt the knife go back against her throat and the sock back into her mouth. Then he penetrated her again. The victim said she was not sure whether it was with his hand or penis this time. She said the object felt hard and different from the first time she was penetrated and when whenever it was pulled out, it was not as, as hard as when it went in and seemed slippery and wet. After police were involved, the victim's clothing and vaginal swab were taken, but the results of any testing of these are not in evidence. There is thus no basis for concluding that Kay ejaculated, but the evidence to which has been referred to here satisfied the judge that his further penetration was by Kay's penis. After stopping, Kay said, If you tell anyone, I'll come back and I'll find you and I will kill you. He then left. The victim then went to the unit in which she lived and told her sister and parents of what had occurred. This had occurred just outside of her room. At the time, the victim was just 17 years old. 
When examined on the following day, she was tearful and the doctor observed redness and tenderness on the heels of both hands, two parallel red lines about eight centimetres long across the front of her throat and a redness and a small abrasion around the vaginal areas. Now, in court, asked why he was at Artarman on the occasion of this attack, Kay suggested he might have been to TAFE that night, but otherwise could give no explanation. Now, a statement from the financial controller of his then-employer showed Kay ceased work that day at 2.30pm. The day was not one on which he had TAFE classes, which in any event were held at Ultimo, which is quite a distance. Kay also advanced the proposition that on some afternoons he played golf. That explanation also does not account for the time between dusk and 10.40pm. Now, Kay did agree it was possible he'd spent some hours in the vicinity looking for a victim. Later he said he was on his way home, there was a petrol station nearby and he thought he stopped to get petrol. That's gasoline for our US people. He asserted firmly that on at least one occasion he obtained petrol at Artarman. Now, in evidence concerning his presence at Artarman, he said it was an alternative way home from the city to Barara or Canterhurst. Now, when you have a look at this on the maps, that is total bullshit. Artarman was not in any logical or normal route for Kay to take when he was driving home. Now, it might be possible just to go to Artarman for petrol, but the number of service stations or gas stations on the Pacific Highway between North Sydney and Longville Road or adjacent to the intersection of the Gore Hill Freeway and the Pacific Highway and the presence of of a huge service station on Epping Road, a few kilometres west of the Pacific Highway, makes this unlikely, given the movements of K as disclosed in evidence. It's inconceivable as a reason for his presence there as often as he was. So basically, what the court was saying is there was no reason for him to be in that area, even if he was getting petrol. It just does not make any sense at all. Kay said that on the night he was wearing a black hooded sloppy joe or tracksuit top and on alighting from his car he put a hood the hood over his head. Now as you may notice Kay seems to be stalking girls not just taking opportunity as it comes. Now at about 11.40pm on the 6th of May 1996 victim 3 arrived by train at Epping Railway Station and commenced to walk home. In Chesterville Road, she heard someone behind her. A hand went over her mouth and she was pushed into a brick fence. Her assailant demanded money. The victim offered her wallet and a little later, a black sock or perhaps some other material was forced into her mouth. Her breasts were squeezed and the blade of what looked to her like a fishing knife was pressed into the right side of her back. She was then grabbed around the top part of her body and shoved down a driveway into some shrubs. She started to scream and the assailant became more aggressive. He said, don't scream, you'll be alright. The victim noticed that the knife was on the ground. The assailant picked it up and held it against her again. He then pushed the victim back out towards the brick fence and placed her hands on it. He again raised the topic of money and credit cards. The victim showed her wallet again. A little later, he again fondled her breasts, undid a couple of buttons off her jeans, and thrust his hands inside her undies. According to the victim, he felt for her clitoris and around the outside of her vagina. She had her periods and a tampon was inside, although he did penetrate. The victim described her assailant's action in this regards as firm but not really violent. Kay told the victim, Right, don't scream. Don't call the police, otherwise I'll hurt you. He then ran off. The victim walked quickly to her home. She was only 18 years of age. 
she received a slight cut to her bottom lip. At the time of arriving home, she was crying, shaking and hyperventilating. She could not talk properly. She objected to her sister calling the police because he's going to get me. Nevertheless, they were called. So that was three of the victims so far. At about 10.55pm on the 14th of May 1996, the fourth victim was walking down Shirley Road, Wollstonecraft, when she heard sounds as if she was being followed. As she opened the door to the foyer of the unit block in which she lived, a man put one hand over her mouth and the other around her waist. He had a knife in one hand. He started to drag the victim through the foyer to some stairs at the rear leading down to the garage. This involved passing the door to another unit in the block which the victim kicked twice as she called for help. The assailant, which is Kay, had forced the victim about halfway down the stairs when she heard the door which she kicked being unlatched. Kay then let go and ran off. The victim, who was 39 years old at the time, suffered two small cuts to her, to her lip and her chin, two distinct bruises, and was left feeling sore all over. Her glasses costing $270 were damaged. When examined later in the evening by a medical practitioner, she appeared very anxious. Now, this victim was the only one that when all this ended up going to court, gave a victim impact statement. In it, she discloses that she is unnerved still by the sight of a man in a hooded jacket and by reports or jokes of rape and knife attacks. She relives what could have been the end of her life. She feels an inner turmoil and her heart pounds when in a crowded street. The victim says that she's become withdrawn, depressed and frightened and illustrates this by detailed examples. At times, she has lost her appetite to the point where her skin was peeling because of malnutrition. Although she has had intercourse since Kay's attack, she's lost interest in the act and now feels it is dirty. So much so that after she has had intercourse, she's had showered numerous times and has had Dettol baths to cleanse herself. Now, at the time of the attack, the victim was suffering from chronic pain syndrome and she was having significant progress until the attack. And since that attack occurred, she's frequently needed painkillers and injections of Valium to calm her down. Now, Kay said that the reason he stopped attacking her at the time was because he realised what he had done. Now, we know that luckily she was able to kick the door of one of her neighbours and Kay ran off once he realised that the door was being open. Nothing to do with him realising what he was doing was wrong. But that is a bit of Kay's personality. Anyway, let's keep going to victim number five. At about 8.30pm on the 30th of May 1996, the fifth victim was walking home from a Tarman railway station. When about two blocks from the station, Kay came up behind her, put his hand on her mouth and demanded money. He also demanded she open her mouth wider and be quiet, and then he put a glove in it. He put a knife to her neck. Then some cars passed by and every time this occurred, Kay moved away from the victim and then returned. A voice was heard and Kay then ran away. The victim's age was 24. She was a student from Japan. When she arrived home, she was upset and started to cry but apparently suffered no physical injury, thank God. So police are starting to see a similar MO in the attacks in this area and they name him the North Shore Rapist. On September the 17th, 1996, at around 9.50pm, 
The sixth victim alighted from a train at Artarman Station. She walked to an automated teller machine directly opposite the station and withdrew $100 from the machine, which she put in a bag she was carrying. She then walked along Hampton Road, across the bridge over the freeway and into Taylor Lane. There, a male voice called out from behind her, Give me your money or I'll hurt you. She screamed, Help! And the male grabbed her. He said, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up or I'll use my knife on you. Understandably, the victim became scared and began to shake. She handed the man the hundred bucks and said, Please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. He pushed a dark coloured rag into her mouth and again said, Shut up or I'll hurt you. The victim saw him holding a knife which he then applied to her throat and pulled her down the lane saying, Give me all your credit cards. Give me all your cards. The victim gave him a key card and her driver's license. During the course of this exercise, he'd put his hand under her jumper and fondled her breasts. There is a pedestrian tunnel which goes under Hampton Road and the tunnel is dark. Kate dragged the victim about five metres into the tunnel, still with a knife against her throat. She was crying, please don't rape me, please don't rape me. He said, shut up, I won't rape you. He grabbed her hands and forced them behind her back and tied them up. The victim's head hit the wall. From behind, the assailant then unzipped her pants and pulled them and her undies down down to her ankles. He started to touch her vagina with his fingers. He put one inside and moved it around. Again, she pleaded, please don't rape me. And again, he said he wouldn't. He then unzipped his fly and said, just for a little bit. And the victim said she felt his penis go inside her vagina for a short time. After which he removed it and again touched her vagina with his hands. He then put his penis back inside her vagina and started moving it in and out. The victim said, please stop it. I won't tell anyone. I promise. I promise. After a short time, Kay withdrew his penis and pulled up his pants. At about this time, he picked up and looked at the victim's driver's license and said, I'm going to go. I know where you live. So if you tell anybody, I'll come and get you because I know where you live. He untied the victim's hands and lifted her jumper up over her head. He again placed a finger inside her vagina, then grabbed the rag out of her mouth and ran off. The victim picked up the bags and cards she'd been carrying and ran straight to work. When the victim arrived at work, she was observed to be crying hysterically and complained to workmates of what had happened. Examined at about 10.30pm that night, She was observed to be very tearful and to have swelling of and abrasions to her lips and a small abrasion to her finger. She also suffered a small graze on her neck. This victim, well, she was only 23 years of age at the time. After the attack, she moved from where she was living because she was frightened that Kay knew where she lived. Some months later, she still felt nervous and anxious and she did, she did not go out at night. In December 1996, she said that she did not think she would live on her own again. I haven't been back to work since and I'm being moved to another location by my employer as I feel anxious to go back to our Tarman. As you can see in attacks like this, The initial attack is one thing and any injuries there can heal. But it's the ongoing psychological injuries that go on for years after the attack that can destroy the victim's life. So on to victim 7. At about 10.30pm on the 22nd of October 1996, the seventh victim arrived by train at Artarman Station. She walked down Francis Street and via an alleyway to the entrance of the blocker units in which she lived. As she put her key in the door, 
Kay came from behind and put a knife to her neck and in a cloth and a cloth deep into her mouth, saying, Shut up, if you do what I say, I won't hurt you. All I want is your credit cards. The victim gestured to her bag, but Kay forced her to a fairly secluded laundry drying area nearby. Inside, he pushed the victim against the wall and pulled her jacket over her head. He then put his knife to her waist and with his other hand undid her bra and touched her all over, including her breasts. He then pulled her skirt and panties down and fingered the victim's vagina roughly causing pain. He stopped, put the knife back to her neck and said, You have a choice. I can either rape you or you can give me a head job. Are you going to give me a head job? Faced with these alternatives, the victim nodded to indicate she would provide the latter. Doing what Kay asked, the victim went down on her haunches and turned around, spitting the cloth out of her mouth. Kay then forced his penis deeply into her mouth, thrusting it in and out about ten times. He then withdrew, turned to the side and ejaculated. He told the victim to face the wall, which she did, and asked if she had any money. She gave him ten bucks and he said, Stay down, don't make a noise, and if you don't tell the police or anybody else, I won't hurt you. Are you going to tell the police? The victim said no. Kay said, If you do, I'll come back and kill you. And then he began to walk off. The, vic- the victim began to say aloud words to the effect, Where's my key? Where's my key? Kay then walked back towards her and said, Your key's in the door. And again, he walked off. The victim then ran to her unit and then gave her flatmate an account of what just occurred. He wanted to phone the police, but the victim resisted saying, No, because he said if I do, He'll come back and kill me. So initially, a friend in the police force was notified. Examined later that night, the victim was shaking and tearful. She had a slight swelling in her upper lip and a 5 centimeter linear mark on her neck. There was a redness around her vagina and an abrasion consistent with removal of a very small area of skin by a fingernail. At the time, the victim was 22 years old. So we come to the last victim. At about 1am on the 24th of December 1996, the victim of this offence alighted from a bus and commenced to walk to her home in Eastwood. As she passed the Kent Road Public School, Kay grabbed her from behind saying, Don't scream, I'm not going to hurt you, I just want your money. The victim collapsed onto the ground. He told her to get up and that he had a knife. He helped her up and pushed her into the driveway of the school. There, he ordered her to open her mouth and put a gag in it. Then he forced her arms behind her back and tied them up. He then pushed her further into the school grounds, by which time he had a knife to her neck. He said, I'm not going to rape you. And... I'm going to search you. He put his hand up the victim's blouse and fondled her breasts. He then undid the drawstring of her pants and put his hand inside her pants and underpants and inserted a finger into her vagina. He then pulled her pants and underpants down, told her to bend over and pushed her back so that the victim bent at the waist. Then from behind, He inserted a finger or fingers into her vagina and moved them around saying things like, Are you a virgin? I'm not going to rape you. And, Have you ever given head? Somehow at that stage, the victim managed to scream and Kay then forcibly applied the knife to her throat and she thought she'd been cut. Kay undid the victim's hands. She pulled her pants up and he said, Keep walking straight ahead. He then ran off. The victim ran home and told her father and the police. At the time of the offence, the victim was only 16 years of age. She resisted being medically examined for some time. On the 28th of December, 
She was seen by a doctor. Now, this is four days later at Royal North Shore Hospital who observed as the only abnormality irregular marks on the front of her throat as if made by a serrated sharp object. This girl was so lucky and it looks like anyone who's able to scream or get the notice or attention of anyone else, this would force Kay just to run off. Anyway, police in response to all these attacks set up Operation Alia and at some stage Kay becomes a suspect and surveillance of him commences. Now, I'll go over some of the observations that police had during this surveillance. On the 22nd of January 1997, for something over an hour in the late afternoon, Kay was observed driving around a limited number of streets in the Macquarie Park area and within this period to watch one female walking along the street. On the 29th of January 1997, during much of a period of about two hours after 4.30pm, Kay was observed driving up and down Glebe Point Road some 30 to 35 times at speeds between 5 and 30 kilometres per hour, looking on numerous occasions at female pedestrians. From time to time, he stopped his vehicle against the curb for periods between a half and two minutes. At about 7.30pm, Kay was observed driving three times around a route in the vicinity of Epping Railway Station. On the 30th of January, 97, Kay was seen to be driving at between 5 and 10 kilometres per hour in the direction of a female undercover police officer. She turned into the driveway of a block of units. He stopped his vehicle at the driveway and appeared to be looking in the direction she had gone. So you can start to see this guy is very premeditated. He is stalking victims. On 4th of February 97, on a number of occasions between 3.40 and 5.01pm and then later, Kay was seen driving in a limited number of streets in the Macquarie Park area looking at female pedestrians. At 5.09pm, 5.16pm and 5.18pm, he was observed looking at a female and a child in a park. By 5.24pm, the female and child had left the park and were walking in a nearby street. They were still or again under observation by Kay, whose vehicle was travelling at 20 kilometres per hour. Now, for everyone who knows miles per hour, these are all very, very low speeds. At 6.52pm on the same day, Kay was followed to the Epping Railway Station area. There he was seen to be watching a female pedestrian in Oxford Street. She walked along that street to Norfolk Road and ultimately into Grayson Road, a distance of just a few blocks. Kay followed her in his vehicle, stopping on four occasions some 20 or 30 metres behind her and allowing her to advance somewhat further before driving on and again reducing the distance. One woman, who the court called Miss C, had this to say. There was an occasion in winter 96 where I was being observed by a man in a car near Artarman Station and then, as I walked home, seeing him and his car some streets along my way about mid-August 96, I saw the same car and man again driving in the area and again observing and apparently following me. On Sunday the 5th of January 97, I again saw the man in the same car apparently waiting and watching in the vicinity of R. Tarman Station. That car was the car of Graham Kay. So his MO seems to be pretty clear. He stalks his prey and then takes his opportunity to attack in a cowardly manner. So Kay, the North Shore rapist, is arrested and eventually is charged for all the attacks I've just outlined. In sentencing, 
the judge says that in isolation, each of these charges, he would probably give a few years each. But when taken as a whole, the danger that Kay has to society meant that he needed a much longer term and eventually he was given 20 years with a non-parole period of 15 years. Now that sounds like justice. Anyway, he's knocked back for his first time for parole, but eventually he does get parole. So Kay does 18 years of a 20 years sentence when he's let out on parole. Now, even though he's still seen as a high-risk offender. Now, you know, he tried to blame all this on phases of the moon, for fuck's sake. That he would lose control because of what his victims were wearing. Now, I say this is all the more reason to keep this fucking scum locked up. Now, I've got this little bit from the Facebook group, Fighters Against Child Abuse Australia. Now, documents tendered in court revealed Kay was recently sacked from his job at Southern Cross Produce at Flemington Markets in Sydney's Inner West when his pixelated image was shown in the media and his female colleagues figured out to their horror that they were working alongside a convicted serial sex offender. Now, apparently the bosses knew he was on parole, but because of privacy legislation, they had no idea he was a high-risk sex offender, for fuck's sake. I mean, how would you be working alongside a sex offender? And how would you be if, say, your wife, your girlfriend, your daughter, your sister was also working there against this fucking scum. Anyway, he had an ankle bracelet. He was able to go to court and get this bracelet taken off because he said it wasn't a good look when he went to the beach. What the fucking fuck is this cunt shouldn't be going to the beach? He shouldn't be let anywhere near a fucking beach. Anyway, as right at the start, We get to April the 17th this year when Kay, and this is air quotes, allegedly grabbed a 16-year-old girl at Woolies, which is a supermarket, and tried to kiss her. This is allegedly people. But 10 days before that, Kay had supervising officers at his front door just doing a checkup that he was adhering to his parole conditions one of which is having people over his home without prior approval. He must also declare any intimate relationships. Well, he didn't want them to come inside and take a look around, but the officers insisted and they found not only had he let someone stay overnight without approval, but it was also his sex worker girlfriend that he failed to tell them about. Now, They walk off and nothing happens. Now, when he was arrested on the 17th of April April, for the alleged assault on the 16-year-old girl, he was given what is called police bail and led back on the streets. Now, I know what you're saying. I know you're screaming into your speakers how the fuck this maggot that can't keep his hands to himself even after spending 18 years in jail and declared as being a high-risk re-offender is getting bail. Now, maybe whoever gave him bail needs to take a holiday because they are obviously overworked, overtired to be making such a fucking crucial fuck-up mistake. I really want to say so much more, but I don't want to cause any problems with his upcoming court case. At least the police took out an apprehended violence order, a piece of paper to protect his alleged victim. Anyway... After the media gets hold of it, the cops must have realised they fucked up. They arrested him again, and on his parole violations, which I told you about before, they then denied him bail. So this maggot is off the street for now, and I'm going to have to update you on this case once the trial has finished. Now what we need here is for this scum to be locked up for a long time. And when he does get out, he needs to be monitored for the rest of his life. 
Even after 18 years in prison, he's shown he will go and do what he knows best, attack and rape. And I know what you're saying. Someone needs to cut his balls off or get some prison justice. I mean, what do you do? He's destroyed the lives of so many of his victims, and yet he's allowed out to resume his life. There's no remorse on his part, only the remorse that he got caught. He's he's only ever had psychological counselling to aid his efforts in parole, not to try to help himself from his urges. The problem I see here is that he is so close to escalating his violence towards the killing of a future victim. Well, I will update you on this scum once his latest series of court appearances are over and this episode is now over in itself. (sighs) Boom, fuckalunga. So, we are at the end of the show. And first of all, I'd just like to say, last week... We had a great time at the Podcast Awards with Tara Barney, uh, with Brod and his wife. It was fantastic. And, of course, I guess you did hear our crossover episode. We will do one in the future. And I think Barney and Tara need to come to the uh, island. I have got the boarding pass there on Facebook if you want to have a look. So, yeah, they'll probably be getting a couple of tickets to the island in the future. And it was great. Although we were nominated in the top 10 popular, we didn't win. But like I said, I felt like I was a winner just being there. And thank you all for your support because it's you guys that got us there. So we go to Patreon. Now we've got a few new Patreon supporters over the last couple of weeks. A big shout out to Sky Harvey, Catherine Green, Kayla, Kayla Griffiths, Erica Kenny, Jessica Cole, Nick Russell, Jody Peterson, Adam LP, Laura Urquhart, and Gerald Vegas. Thank you very much. Now, if you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com, true crime island, forward slash true crime island, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. All funds go directly back to the island. And don't forget, we keep the island commercial free. So it's all done on listener donations. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal, and that you can do by typing paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. If you want stickers, koozies, lapel pins, or key rings, you need to email me directly. My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com, and I can price it up for you according to whatever you want and wherever you are. I have $20 and $25 loot packs available now. They include keychain, lapel pin, koozie and stickers. Also, it includes the postage. The cheaper loot pack doesn't have the koozie. All other merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage, all that stuff is via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com and I'm going to lose my voice in a minute. Thanks to everyone who's bought some swag. A shout out to Renee and Amber. There are links to everything at truecrimeisland.com, so iTunes, all that sort of stuff, merch, Patreon. Again, you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review, and share the love. The more people who know about the show, the better. The people who don't know what a podcast is, help them. Show them the way. Join the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join the chat. Can you please join the closed group? We've got two great moderators. We've got Jason and Sanger. They will take care of you if I can't. Don't forget to check out Twitter and Instagram. The island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat there. There's heaps of other podcasts you'll find on there as well. Hi to all the followers. And guess what? I've got two promos for two very good podcasts. One is the Asian Madness podcast. I really love this one. Uh, it's hosted by the lovely Jess, where she'll discuss, discuss, she'll discuss true crime, superstition, urban legends, mysteries, and weird news from the Asian continent. Yeah, have a listen. Also, have, I have another podcast called Targeted. Now, this is a podcast that investigates one case of family violence each season using academic research to help us interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. 
Season 1 spotlights the 1976 death of four-year-old Melicia Gibson after days of abuse at the hands of a stepfather. Join for Season 1 as they examine the circumstances surrounding how her torturous death in 1976 led to changes in social service departments around the United States. So do yourself a favour and check it out. Well, that's about all for tonight and lots of love to Maggie James. So, this has been Cambo and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. true crime, mysteries, or urban legends, and maybe anything along the lines of weird. If your answer is yes, please give the Asian Madness podcast a go, where I cover all of the topics mentioned above, but from the Asian continent. Podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted, True Crime, Domestic Violence. We'll investigate one case of family violence each season using academic research to interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. Join us as we spotlight the death of four-year-old Melissa Gibson from her stepfather's abuse, delve into her family situation, break down the trial of her parents, and examine how her murder in 1976 led to changes in social service departments around the United States. Is there something we can learn about family violence through examining her murder? I think there is. She wasn't the only one in the house who was being abused.